You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. Well, good morning, everybody. Thank you, Aidan, for reading so well for us. My name's Dave. I'm the pastor here of Harborside Church, and it's awesome to be here. I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask God that he would open our eyes to what he wants to teach us this morning. So let's bow our heads together and pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We ask in humility. We ask that you would prepare our hearts and our minds to hear from you. Lord, speak through me, a sinful man. Speak your truth to your people this morning that we'd leave here changed We ask that the gospel would challenge and transform us and encourage us and give us peace. Amen. If I asked you to think of an authority figure in your life, now or in your past, who comes to mind? As Matt mentioned before, this is kind of the topic of conversation for this morning. So an authority figure, past or present, who comes to mind? It could be a parent, it could be a teacher, a boss relative, or even maybe a person within the church, who comes to mind? This authority figure in, the, in your life, positive or negative? Positive influence or negative? How do you regard that person of authority? I, I'd hazard a guess that it's probably a mixed bag. We've all got experiences of both kinds, I would imagine. Maybe some of us positive. I think a lot of us may be negative. I reckon, I don't know about you, I'm going out on a limb here. I reckon us Aussies, we've got a problem when it comes to authority. I think us Aussies, we've just, we just got a problem when it comes to this issue. Collectively, we just love the idea of sticking it to the man, don't we? We just love it. Who do we cheer for? We cheer for the underdog. The Americans, we were living over there, they didn't understand that, but it just seems natural for us to go for the underdog, to stick it to the man. We love that. We love that idea of... Bringing people down to our level, right? What's that called? The tall poppy syndrome. Anyone raises their head through achievement or maybe some sort of authority, we like to bring them down. In the States, they used to call it, why do you Aussies have charping poppies? Is that what it's called? And they, they just, it's not in their culture, right? They just didn't understand that. They tend to sort of revere people of power and authority. Us, we like to bring them down. We're quite cynical. Us Aussies. You know, maybe it goes back to our beginnings as a country. Maybe it goes back to our convict past. You know, America, they had a very different beginning to their country, didn't they? It was a utopic vision. Let's start a country all about freedom and the pursuit of happiness and liberty. And their heroes are heroes of revolution. People bringing them freedom. What about us Aussies? A dystopic beginning, right? Who would want to be there, sent by the British Empire to the back end of the world for misdemeanor crimes or a bunch of convicts who are our authority figures, people who squashed our freedom, right? People who denied us freedom. I mean, in our history, we have the flogging parson. Have you heard of him? Samuel Marsden, one of the first Australian chaplains to the Australian colonies, had the responsibility of flogging the prisoners. He'd preach on Sunday. Whip him on Tuesday. That was his job. Now, I think a lot of the accounts of him being the flogging parson are greatly exaggerated, but that that almost doesn't really matter because we like that narrative. We distrust people who have authority over us. We talk about a confusing authority. Preach grace. 
use the whip. Interesting. I think all of this has bled into our culture, and we've just got a healthy mistrust for authority and anyone who would seek to wield it over us. Anyone trying to exercise authority over us surely is seeking to prevent freedom rather than helping it flourish. You know, personally, this really resonates with me. I'm being, being pretty honest here, but I've, if you know me, you'll know this to be true. I've always struggled with people of authority over me. I've always bucked against it. I've always been very suspicious of people in authority, of people trying to tell me what to do. Now, I can't blame my convict past completely. But I think for me, and I can't blame this, I have a responsibility for this too, but I think it goes back to my early childhood of the, the biggest authority figure in my life, my father walking out in our family. And since then, I've just had such a suspicion over anyone who would seek to tell me what to do, because surely they don't have my best intentions at heart. This is why I really struggled growing up in the church. I just thought everything the church was teaching equaled a straitjacket, that what they were teaching couldn't possibly be for my benefit. I thought rebellion equaled freedom. And we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? I thought rebellion equaled freedom. I didn't realize that Jesus was trying to free me from my rebellion. Well, this is our theme for today, authority. In our passage for today, Jesus proves that he has authority in a civil sector, morally, theologically. He has authority. But the question before us is, what kind of authority is it? He has it. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus has it. But what kind of authority is that like? Are we drawn to it or are we repelled by it? It is a good authority we want to submit to or like everything else, are we just suspicious because surely he can't have our best intentions at heart. So today we look at three different episodes where Jesus shows us his authority. Now, where are we? Well, we start in Jerusalem. Last week we saw Jesus enter the great city of Jerusalem we are in our series, like, Mark, uh, like Matt said, in Mark, journey with Jesus. As Jesus journeys towards the cross, we follow him. And we ask the question, what does it mean to follow Jesus on this journey? Today, we, we, the last sort of section of Mark here focuses on the last week of Jesus' life. Mark takes up a great deal of time to talk all about this because he's got a lot to say to us about this important time in Jesus' life. So Jesus is in the temple. It's hustling and bustling. People are coming at him from all areas. If you were listening to the reading, you would have noticed that people from the Jewish ruling council, it was called the Sanhedrin. It just meant the Jewish ruling council. And it was made up of different Jewish sects. Different representatives from that council come to him with three different questions. Three different questions. Jesus gives three awesome answers. Now, these aren't easy questions. They're curly ones. And as we see him answer them, we'll see truly what kind of authority he brings. Let's get going. Right. Three different questions to Jesus. Now, I love it when people come to me and want to talk about the Christian faith. I love it. I love it when people have questions, doubts, or concerns. or It's just fantastic. It's what I love doing, talking about faith. That's why I love Alpha so much. It's just a, a place where people can journey with their faith and ask questions in a non-threatening environment. It's fantastic. But we all know there are questions and then there are questions, right? We know there are a genuine seeking to understand questions, 
By the way, this week I just heard that that statement in the corporate world is a bit of a thing, like, I'm seeking to understand. Is that, is that true? That rings a bell? Yeah, okay. Anyway, I think that just means, you know, when your eyes glaze over, what are you doing? I'm seeking to understand. <laughs> Someone told me that. I'm going to use that. I like that in our staff meeting. I'm going to use it. Get ready. <laughs> I'm seeking to understand. But there are those questions that it, they really want, they want answers. And then there are questions designed just to try and trick you, to catch you out. A gotcha moment. I remember seeing Julie Bishop, the then foreign minister, being interviewed. And she just unleashed on this journalist. I mean, she was giving fantastic questions about her portfolio. And then he just produced a question that had nothing to do with her. It was the, the finance minister, what he was doing, and really about his portfolio. And she just unleashed on him. How do you expect me to know the answer to that? You just want your gotcha moment. I thought, man, good on her to have the courage to call him out like that. Because it was so true. We're just after that gotcha moment. And this is exactly what these people are doing to Jesus, particularly the first two questions. They're trying to catch him out. Well, good luck with that. So let's look at our first question all about paying taxes to Caesar. Let's look at this first question together. Now, who brings this question to Jesus? Well, Mark tells us the Pharisees and the Herodians. Well, who are they? Well, we've heard about the Pharisees before. If you've read the New Testament before, you hear about them. These folks are a bunch of religious people, okay, a religious group that were more very conservative from the rural areas, letter of the law, very conservative people. Now, they didn't like the Roman rule. They weren't sort of revolutionaries. They weren't trying to overthrow Roman rule, but they couldn't stand that the Romans were there. And then you had the Herodians, right? These were people from Herod's court, King Herod, and they were basically in bed with the Romans. They, they relied on their patronage to survive. So we can see something suspicious going. Here's people who have different views on this question, bringing this question to Jesus. We can already see some suspicious things are going on. And we're told of their intentions from the start. They're sent to catch him in his words. Verse 14. Let's have a look at this. They came to him, that is the Pharisees and the Herodians, and said, Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are but you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay it or shouldn't we? Now, what are they doing here? We can see it, right? They're using flattery to try and paint Jesus in a corner, and it's pretty gross. You know what it's like when your co-workers suck up to the boss at work, and it's pretty gross. And if you're thinking, no one in my team does that, well, it's probably you, okay? <laughs> But it's gross. It looks gross, sucky. And this is exactly what's happened. They're trying to butter up Jesus so he says something that gets into trouble. Oh, Jesus, you don't care what anyone else thinks about you, do you? You can say whatever you want, no matter the cost. There's no compromise for you, is there, Jesus? So, imperial tax, should we pay it or not? It's a very clever question. And it's, it's, it's like stepping into a field of landmines. There's two major ways Jesus can stuff this up. If he says yes or no, he's in trouble. If he says, well, yes, we should. Sorry, if he says no, he's in major trouble with the Roman authorities. Right? Most people there thought the imperial tax was unfair. No one really liked the Romans. But you couldn't come out right and say it because the Roman, it's probably a Roman guard listening in. He, he said, no, we are exempt. We shouldn't pay it. He runs the risk of being arrested. And then the, the Pharisees are just... Thumbs up. It's their plan has worked. So if he says, don't pay it, he's in trouble. If he says yes, he'd probably lose the credibility of the people. Oh, he's just a puppet of the Roman Empire. Yes and no, he's in trouble. So what does he do? Well, with the wisdom of Solomon, he can see their true intentions and he calls them out. 
Why are you trying to trap me? Bring me a coin. Now, side note, we see here that the Son of God was so dirt poor, he didn't even have a coin. He had to ask for a coin to give this illustration. Whose image is this, he says. He gets the coin. Whose image is this? Whose inscription is on it? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. As am I. What an answer. Now, what's Jesus saying? It sounds like a great answer, but what does he really mean? You and I, we know this, we've got to live in this world and engage with how it works, don't we? In fact, I think God works through and provides for us through our government. So participate in it. And in doing so, you're not compromising your faith. But don't for a second think that Caesar is due any more than that. Give to our government what is rightfully theirs. But here's the heart of it. Give to God what is God's. The coin, right, it's got Caesar's imprint on it. But what has God's imprint on it? Our soul. So give him that. Only God has the authority to claim it because he made you and I, and he's the only one we'll find true rest in. So in our first episode here, we see Jesus has great authority. He teaches us how to function in the world. Give what you owe to how the world works, but give to God what he is owed. Okay, let's move on to our next question for this morning. The Pharisees and the Herodians have had their turn. Now the next group of people have their turn. The Sadducees. They put a question to Jesus. Now, who are they? Well, if the Pharisees are sort of more right-wing, very letter-of-the-law, rural kind of folk, the Sadducees couldn't be more different. Of the wealthy, elite families tied to the temple in Jerusalem, much more liberal in their theology. And we're told from the beginning, the Sadducees, who believed there was no resurrection. They had a very liberal, if you could say, modernist view of things, and they stripped the supernatural away from their religion. And they come with a question. Now, on the surface, it looks quite confusing, but it's fairly straightforward with a little bit of background, okay? It seems, what are they getting at here? It's straightforward, but it's ridiculous. So permit me just one little paragraph here to explain, and then we'll get it, all right? God had given Israel rules and things to live by that would be best for them. Israel was supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, a light to the other nations. Other nations were supposed to look at Israel and go, who is your God? Amazing. One of these is a law that the Sadducees point out today, which is this. If a man died, leaving a woman widowed with no children, the brother had an obligation to take care of her, to marry her, to take care of her, and to take care of his brother's inheritance. Now, the Sadducees say, what if this happens a lot? What if this woman, I don't know, she has some sort of curse, and this, this, she keeps going through husbands, right? She, it's just obviously a very bizarre hypothetical. What if this woman is married seven times, and then she dies, and they get to heaven? Who's she going to be married to? Now, I'm sure if you had Jesus to yourself, this is the question you'd put to him, isn't it? You just, you're so interested in the answer. I can tell you are. I can tell. It's a weird question. Why are they asking it? Here's why. They're trying to make the idea of a resurrection absurd. That's what they're doing. Because of the problem we've put to you, Jesus, because of this riddle, 
The idea of a resurrection is impossible. Jesus has been talking about eternal life, the kingdom of God, life after death, all that kind of stuff. But they're coming to him and saying, because of this riddle we've made, what you've been talking about is a joke, right? They're trying to promote their way of seeing the world. You would be foolish to believe in anything that you can't see. A plus B equals C. Well, it equals F, guys. I think this might help to illustrate a little bit. I saw this post recently as I was going through it, scrolling through Facebook. It was a tweet from the Atheist Forum trying to point out how ridiculous the idea of the Christian life is. Check it out. And they said this, Christianity, belief that one God created a universe 13.79 billion years old, 93 billion light years in diameter, that's one light year equals approximately 6 trillion miles, thanks for that, consisting of over 200 billion galaxies, each containing an average of 200 billion stars, only to have a personal relationship with you. And what are they trying to do? The idea is ridiculous, isn't it? The God who created the vast universe, if there is such a God, couldn't possibly be interested in you, couldn't possibly be interested in a bunch of human beings revolving around a blue dot somewhere in this vast galaxy. Well, Atheist Forum, we believe in something even crazier than that. We believe that this all-powerful God loved us so much, he became one of us. Now, I don't want to mock anyone who's not a Christian or has doubts about the Christian faith. I think there are some really good reasons that people have doubts. But the person who tweeted this has come to a conclusion based on a false idea of who God is. Because of his enormity, they assume he must be distant and uncaring. But from the very beginning of God's word, we see a God who was intimately involved in his creation from the very first chapter. The whole story of the Bible is what he's done to bring us back to him. His vastness does not take away from his intimacy. And really a similar thing is happening here with the Sadducees. They come to Jesus with their own authority, right? With their own lens, their own lens of modernity of what they think must be true. Their own idea of who God is and how he operates. But Jesus is having none of it. Verse 24, he says this, ouch. May we never hear this from the words of Jesus. Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? You don't know the Bible and you don't know the power of God. Your question has many flaws. Here's two. That's what he's saying to them. Firstly, when the dead rise, that's it for marriage. Now, that's quite a significant thing to say, and we don't have time to go the whole way down there. But what Jesus is saying is marriage is for this life. It's not forever. It's from death to us part. Our union with Christ is actually what we truly long for, and that is fulfilled in the new creation. Secondly, God has always been a God of the living, not of the dead. Now, remember what I said before the Sadducees, they were kind of loose with the scriptures, didn't believe in the supernatural. Well, they did believe in the first five books of the Bible, that is the Pentateuch. So Jesus takes them back there to prove his point. In Exodus chapter 3, God says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are the patriarchs who lived before Moses. He says, I am their God because they are still with me. They are living with me on the other side. So that's Jesus to religious leaders 
Zero. Now, these religious leaders had put their authority over God's and they'd taken the power of God away. You know what I think? I just think it's really, really easy to think silly, silly Sadducees. How could they be so stupid? As if we would ever doubt God's authority. But you know what? If I'm being honest, I often find myself asserting my own authority over God's. You know, I'm not going to lie to you. I know what the right thing to do is. But right now, this just makes more sense to do something else. You know, I, I know what God wants for me, but it's just more convenient to do something else. I know what God wants for me, but frankly, this just requires less of me. Anyone else feel the same? You see, this has been our struggle ever since the Garden of Eden, trusting God's good word and good rule. We've always struggled. Well, what can we do about it? Is there any hope for us? Well, there is, and we'll get to it. Let's get to our final question of the day, and I think this is really going to help us. Question number three. You with me? You tracking with me still? Okay, thank you. All right, here we go. Question number three from another religious leader. He sees Jesus gave the Sadducees a great answer. He thought, I'll give it a go. Jesus, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Of all of the commandments. We just think there's 10, but the religious leaders came up with 600 and something to make sure they were keeping the law. Of all of those, which is the most important? This was a really popular discussion with rabbis and teachers back then. Jesus, weigh in. Help us out. Simplify it, maybe? What is the most important? And we know this. We know this passage pretty well as Christians, don't we? Jesus gives a very simple answer. It's one word, actually. He says, love. I'll break it down for you. The law of love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It couldn't be more comprehensive, could it? I mean, it's utterly comprehensive. It encapsulates our whole beings, doesn't it? And this is what we were made for. This is what worship is. This is what it means to honour, to glorify God, to give him everything he's worth because he is worthy. He's owed everything because he's given us everything. So love the Lord your God with all that you have and love your neighbour as ourselves. This is how Jesus sums up all the law and commandments. This is the authority of God and it looks like love. But here's the thing, okay? We've heard this too much. I mean, did anyone sing that? Love the Lord to go with all your heart. Okay, we're going to sing it. Band, if we can give up. No, we're not. But it becomes too familiar to us. At the end, it says the people were in awe of him. They were amazed at him. They dare not ask any other questions because what Jesus says here, it wasn't, oh, he's talking about love. It made them freak out. They knew why. Because what Jesus asked of them is intense. What's the question? Jesus, what does God require of us? What does Jesus say? Love God with everything you have and love others selflessly. I don't think anyone there would have thought, cool, I can do that. Because that's not what is supposed to happen here. 
And here's the thing. Love God with everything I have. Do you do that? I mean, I can't do that. Honor his authority in every single area of my life. Do I do that? Love my neighbor as in the people in my life more than I love myself. Put others above me. I can't do that. I mean, I don't have time today to tell you all the ways I struggle with this on a weekly basis. Here's the question. Remember we're talking about authority? What is the flavor of his authority? Has Jesus just heaped a massive burden on our shoulders that we cannot bear to carry? Because the truth is we love a lot of things more than we love God. And we struggle to love the closest people in our lives more than ourselves, let alone our neighbor or our enemies. So where does that leave us? What do we do with this? Are our suspicions about authority, God's authority, actually true here? Is he a harsh taskmaster, a whipping parson, waiting for us to stuff up? I reckon that is the view of most people outside the church of who they think God is. He's just this distant God in the sky with a big beard, with a lot of rules, waiting for us to stuff up so he can judge us. Is that God? Is that the flavor of his authority? Like an old headmaster, a teacher or a relative who may have been in our past, have our suspicions been right? Well, how do we answer this? Of course, we look to Christ. Why? Because God knows we could never love him with everything we are. God knows that we can never love our neighbor perfectly. So he sent someone to do it for us. You see, Jesus Christ, eternally God, chose to submit to his father's authority and become a man. He loved God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He loved his neighbor, you and I, far more than he loved himself. See, Jesus shows us what kind of authority he displays, he exercises. Is this an authority we're drawn to or repelled by? I mean, look at the incredible grace shown toward us. Jesus Christ shows us the kind of authority he leads with by laying down his life. And only when we let his loving authority, his incredible grace shown to us melt our hearts, could we ever begin to love him like this and love our neighbor like that. Let me end um, with a story that I think is going to help illustrate this this morning. Remember the question is, why do we struggle with this kind of authority? Why do we struggle to live under God's good rule? Because we suspect that he's holding out on us, that he's not as good as he claims to be, and he doesn't have our best interests at heart, and he's going to exercise a harsh rule over us. That's why we mistrust. Well, what does his authority look like? He lays down his life. Is that beautiful? And let me illustrate with this story. Once upon a time, in a kingdom far, far away, story, there lived a king. He was a great and well-respected ruler. His kingdom was known for justice, peace, and harmony and goodwill. Neighbors loved each other. They cherished one another. Years would pass without a single crime being committed. One day, however... The king's chief servant comes to him and says, King, we have a thief in our midst. Someone is stealing from your people and causing pain. Someone is robbing the people of your community. 
the king was greatly angered because he was a man of justice. And he said, do whatever you can to find this thief. And when you do, the punishment is 10 lashes. Well, some time goes by. The chief servant comes again into the throne of the king and says, we cannot find the thief. But it continues. More people have been robbed. More people are hurt. The king is greatly angered. This, there is 25 lashes is the punishment. Now, people are in awe. Nothing like this has happened in the kingdom for a long, long time. And this is a harsh penalty. Who could withstand such a punishment? Some time goes by. The chief servant comes again. It's still happening. We cannot find him. The king is greatly angered. He cares for his people. You find this thief. And when you do bring him to me, the punishment is 50 lashes. Now, the people of the village are in awe. No one could withstand this kind of punishment. Some time passes. The chief servant comes to the king, ashen-faced. He says, we've found the thief. He says, bring him to me so he can receive his punishment. Well, he's brought into the throne of the king. It's crowded around, and as the crowd parts, he sees who is in front of him. Standing there, guilt-ridden, full of shame, shaking, is the king's young son. Now, what does the king do? Does he show his love and mercy and say the punishment doesn't matter and lose face in front of all of the people he rules over? Or does he exercise his great justice and righteousness and the punishment stands? What does he do? He yells out to his servants, bring the whipping post. Tie my son to the whipping post. And the people are just, they cannot believe what is going to happen. No one can withstand this kind of punishment. The king sits on his throne a few steps up from the courtyard. The young son is tied to the whipping post. The man responsible to carry out the punishment stands there waiting for the king's order. The king says, begin. And the whipping master pulls back the whip. And he says, as he's about to start with the first lash, the king yells out, halt. The king stands up, takes off his crown, walks down the steps, takes off his robe, approaches his son, wraps his massive body around his young son, enveloping him completely, and says, now begin. Friends, this is what Christ did for you and for me. This is how he displays his authority. Why would we ever want to shirk it? Who would not want to live under his loving rule? The reason I tell this story is because we want the gospel to captivate our hearts, right? Here's the question, how do we change? How do we transform these hearts? How do we begin to live, love God like this and love our neighbor as ourselves? How do we do it from a place of delight, not of duty? I must do this, but if I want to do this, the answer is when we are captivated with the grace of God, when our heart is changed, when we are changed from the inside out, then we can begin to live from delight and not duty. You see? When we behold this perfect picture 
of his loving authority. It changes our hearts, and we want to do what he requires of us. When we truly behold him, we want to please him, not out of duty, under his painful leadership, but out of delight, under his servant-loving leadership. Let me pray for us. Father God, there'll be many people in this room who, including myself at times, doubt your goodness, doubt your good and right rule. Remind us of who you really are. Sweep the doubts out of our minds. Help us to remember the gospel. It's how we're saved. It's how we change. Make it real to us again. Captivate our hearts with that beauty. Help us to love small things in a small way, medium things in a medium way, big things in a big way, and you ultimately, because you loved us intimately. Only then can we do it. This is the power of God. We love you, Father. Amen.